Grace to you and peace, faith family. I want to just, if you allow me, take a brief moment this morning before we get into the service and the preaching of God's word. And just on behalf of the Peterson and the McAllister family, I just want to thank you for, um, for you being here for us in a very difficult time as we uh, had Johnny's funeral. Uh, I want to thank the deacons, uh, Terry and, and everybody that was involved with that, Jim and Man, you guys just were unbelievably hospitable to the, fa the family um, from being here to helping set up chairs, Gordon, sweating, you know, everything. Just a bunch of work during that funeral, and you guys really came through for my family and, uh, and the loss of uh, Johnny, and I just want to personally thank you for that. Please continue to pray for our family <clears throat> as we go through <coughs> a little bit. Continued, not a little bit, but continued grief. And uh, pray for me. I wasn't here last week. I did uh, come down with COVID, so I am on the healing, uh, on the healing side of it. Uh, however, this stupid cough just doesn't seem to want to uh, let go of me. So I'm going to be dealing with this probably all the way through the service. So please uh, forgive me uh, if that uh, distracts you in that. So on behalf of the Peterson and the McAllister family, thank you so much for your goodness and your love to us, continue to pray for us as we continue to grieve and go through um, the loss of Johnny. I'm, I'm very grateful. Um, so last week, if you were here, we returned to our verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of Acts. And this is going to conclude our journey as we have been journeying through this book. Uh, this series will conclude that as we now are coming to this final part of the historical account of how by God's providence he was able to see his church spread, not only in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, but to the other ends of the world. Many would people would call this a part of what we are going to study Paul's fourth missionary journey, uh, and I wouldn't have a problem with that. We have decided to entitle this series The Road to Rome. We're picking up where Paul left off in, <coughs> on his third missionary journey, where we began our journey here last week with, uh, with uh, Jeremy preaching in Jerusalem, and that is where we find ourselves this morning. We also saw that Paul, in an attempt to be all things to all people so that the gospel could be made known, decides to pure himself along with four other, uh, other men. So you have to get this, beloved. Paul, as an, an apostle, has returned from his third missionary journey he is now inside of Jerusalem, and he's seeking to do all that he can for the church here in Jerusalem. He's seeking to do all that he can to remove any sort of animosity that may be here uh, and in order to provide the church of Jerusalem the opportunity to preach the gospel. But this morning, we are going to see the face of hatred. We're going to see how the face of hatred turns, reminding us that often... It is in the very midst of doing all that we can, all the right things for peace, that we will often find ourselves square in the crosshairs of hate. I want to remind you, Paul would tell us that we are to do all that we can to be at peace. But even in the midst of doing all that we can to be at peace, doesn't mean necessarily, ipso facto, that therefore hate will be removed. But it is often here that we find the opportunity in the midst of these times, to share all the things that God has done for us. And this is exactly what you're going to discover. You're going to discover that is in the midst of a context of a situation that Paul is going through. By the way, a context that is going to create some difficulty for many people who, who have been taught in, in health, wealth, and prosperity uh, false gospel. They're going to be seeing some things here that are going to really challenge that false narrative, that false theology. So what I would like for us to do as we journey through this together is we are going to now this morning look at Paul as he shares his testimony. Paul is going to share his testimony. We're going to pick up in Acts chapter 21 verse 27 and we are going to read all the way through the remainder of chapter 22. How are you feeling about that? I know some of you are already here going, while we are never going to get out before dinner. <clears throat> it's okay. Just be with me. It's probably going to take me longer to read all this than it will be for me to preach it. <laughs> That's a joke. That's just a joke. 
Uh, Acts chapter 21, we'll begin in verse 27 and read through verse, chapter 22 through uh, verse 29. This is the word of the Lord. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian in the city, with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took, he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they had saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And then the commander came up and took hold of them and, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people following, kept following him, shouting, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred a revolt and led the 4,000 men, uh, 4, men of the assassins out into the wilderness. But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. When he had given permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand, and he was there with a great hush. He, turned, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the councils of the elders can testify. From then, I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. But it happened that, I, that as I was on my way according, uh, approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. <coughs> And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came unto Damascus. A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him, and he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, and to see the righteous one, and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem, and was praying in the temple, that I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in no one, that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I, also, I was also standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, Go. For I will send you far away to the Gentiles. They listened to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, "Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should be done. He, he sh for he should not be allowed to live." 
And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he may, might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. And when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, But I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman. And because he had put him in chains. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and King, be with the preaching and teaching of this word. And may those who are here who do not know you, may today be their eternal day of salvation. And God, for those of us who do, Father, may we be strengthened. May we be strengthened by truth. May we be assured by the reality of your goodness and grace in the midst of even persecution and hatred and envy and anger. And that, God, may we be faithful. And may we be a people who would be known for our testimony in the midst of difficult situations. Bless us and keep us. In Jesus' name, amen. Quite a story, yes? What we're going to do here is we're going to go through this passage, and I want us to pay particular attention to three things that I have seen in, in, the, re, in the relationship to the way uh, this passage uh, kind of works out. And the first thing I want you to see is that Paul is taken. And this is from 20, verses 27 through verse 36. It starts when the seven days were almost over. The seven days. Last week, we were told that Paul was going off to purify himself. And I'm pretty sure that when we study that, we can see that if you go back to according uh, to Numbers 19, you would go back to this idea of the purification. And the purification process required a cleansing, and that cleansing would happen on the third and the seventh day. And so here it seems to be on this seventh day that Paul returns to the temple for the completion of this purification process. And here we learned that there are some Jews from Asia. Now, you've got to understand that Asia in the scriptures is not talking about a continent. It's not talking about the continental idea of Asia that we have today. No, Asia in the scriptures is talking about the Roman province that occupies the eastern part of what would today be Turkey. And so this area of Asia that would today be Turkey, the capital of this area was a little city known by the name of Ephesus, which is where we get the book Paul was writing to the book of Ephesians. He was writing to the people in Ephesus. And it is likely these Jews are from Ephesus, where Paul would spend three years uh, in, in his preaching and in his ministry. And I believe this is further confirmed by the fact that in verse 29, it says that they saw Trophimus, who was an Ephesian. So this makes sense. If they see Trophimus, who was an Ephesian, how would they know that this man was from Ephesus? And the obvious way they would know he was from Ephesus is because they were from Ephesus and they were able to see Trophimus is also from Ephesus. Turn with me real quick. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but in uh, Acts chapter 20, 17 through 19. Acts chapter 20, 17 through 19. Remember that Paul is here on his missionary journey and he is coming from Miletus. And he is going to send a letter to Ephesus, and he's going to call to the elders of the church. And this is what it says in verse 18. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourself, so all these leaders from Ephesus have now come to Jerusalem. I mean, I'm sorry, come to Paul in Miletus, and he is going to tell them a farewell. And in verse 18, he says, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, look, which came upon me through the plot of the Jews. 
So there was a plot of these Jews who were plotting against Paul, and now it seems, going returning back to where we are in our passage this morning, that they have caught up with him, so to speak. Here, he, they, uh, Paul is in Jerusalem. They have traveled from Ephesus to Jerusalem, and upon seeing him, upon seeing him, which, by the way, is this idea of a long-searching glance. In other words, they were looking for Paul. They were constantly looking for him, and they have finally seen him. They have finally called up to him. And now what do they do? They stir up the crowds to the point of laying hands on him. And by the way, I want you to notice that these Jewish people who are wholly bound to the law and are accusing this man of breaking the law now have attacked him and seized him before any charges have been made. So much for the law, huh? It seems to be this idea that <clears throat> I want the law to apply to me, to apply to them, but not to me. So they attack him and they seize him before any charge. And as mobs so often do, they act on assumption and misinformation. They act on assumption and misinformation. Then that's what mobs do. I mean, we are, we are not far from having many mobs in our streets, in our own country, in our own cities. And it's amazing to me how often these mobs are reacting or acting on actors and actresses in situations in which there is total misinformation and so many assumptions. Ladies and gentlemen, never be confused by this because when evil can't succeed against truth, it's going to do two things and you're going to find this over and over and over. When evil cannot succeed against truth, it will get louder and it will get more aggressive. It will get louder and it will get more aggressive. It's a common reaction of those who even in our day Often those who can't win in debate often revert to the irrational and the emotional. They get louder and louder and louder because I can't win the argument, so I'm just going to outshout you. I can't win against truth, so I'm just going to get more violent. I'm going to get more aggressive. But I want you to remember that Jesus wasn't unaware of this. As a matter of fact, what we read in the scriptures is that Jesus would warn us of this. Turn with me to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. Jesus is speaking here of the things that will come. And obviously, we're going back to Luke. Acts would be in the future for what Jesus is saying. So he is speaking to this future. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 21. I'm going to read three verses. Then he continued by saying to them, this is Jesus, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. And then what's verse 13? It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. Ah. Well, that's not in our, in our modern day evangel evangelism class now, is it, ladies and gentlemen? That's not in our modern day idea of evangelism. Ladies and gentlemen, it is in obedience to God that we are often criticized. Is it in obedience to God in our best efforts, in our best options, in our best opportunity to reveal to people their sin, to show them their Savior? It is in our best efforts to be as honest and as truthful as we can that you will be criticized and you will discover hostility. Now this does two things for me. Number one, it's, I would say this, so much for the whole idea that if things are difficult, you should just stop what you're doing, missiology. Right? Hmm. You do know that often the difficulty is directly associated because you are actually doing God's will. I remember when we were, Kinsey and I were stuck in Uganda 
was sitting in a room in Fort Portal in an office, in, a, in a house, and I was there. We had just got back from Kamwinge, and we had just got done preaching uh, to the people of Kamwinge, and we got back, and we were there that night, and I was headed to the uh, airport, and I found out that my airplane wasn't going to last, and we had already had tremendous airline problems, and I get back, and I'll never forget what my brother said to me. Um, we were sitting there, and he goes, man, you, the, 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 the Christian uh, pastor friend there, he says, man, you must be doing something right for all this trouble to be coming upon you. And I said, huh. And then you call to the States and they, you know, you get back and what's the first, one of the first things I hear when I get back, hey, we got to rethink this whole thing that maybe this is not what God has for you. It's too much difficulty. Ladies and gentlemen, you will find more about the character of a man, not in times of comfort and convenience but in times of trial and controversy. It is not the idea that just because things go wrong, you're doing something wrong. You could very well be doing something right. Let that sink in. As we obey the Spirit of God with a good conscience, we can very well endure, sustain difficulty and hardships. How many times have I taught you it is more important to be faithful to the calling of God's word than it is to your emotions and your circumstances around you? You see, on one end, you can say you discovered you've encountered great difficulty. It must not be God's will. But on the other hand, it could be just as evil. It could be just as bad. You know, I'm only I know it's God's will because there's an open door. There's a boat available. There's an open window. There's an opportunity. Ladies and gentlemen, there was a boat to Tarshish for Jonah. Open opportunities, open doors doesn't necessarily mean that's God's will for you. No more than closed doors or closed opportunities means it's not God's will for you. God's will is God's will for you. There are situations and circumstances that are going to come in our life. And what we have to do is be indwelt by the Spirit of God, be reminded of who He is in His Word, and with good conscience before God, do what we're called to do. And if God is going to use that which is going to be stop signs in our life, then He will use it for His glory. And if He is going to use go lights in our life, He will also use it for His glory. For I want to remind you, the God that I serve is the God of providence over success and failures. Open doors, shut doors, available boats, not available boats. He's going to be there and all He wants us to do is be faithful. What did I tell you to do? Do what I told you to do. Well, God, this is hard. I was having a conversation with a man just the other day, and I was telling him, hey, you know what? You've got to get your physical life in order. You are all out of whack. You know, you're not exercising. Your body's all out of whack. And he was like, man, that's hard. And I said, yeah. I said, you've got to get your financial life in order because right now, man, you are living a life of poverty, not because you have to, but because you want to. You have a mindset of poverty, and that's what you want. And I, I'm trying to help you see that you can put budget in life. He goes, man, that's hard. That budgeting stuff is hard. I said, yeah, man, you need to get your spiritual life in order because the life of hope and faith and love and the things that God has called you to, you have to be disciplined, Paul told Timothy, in order to live the life that God has called you there. Being disciplined is hard. Yeah, it's hard. You have to get your mind right because, you know what, you're thinking, you got stinking thinking, and every time you wake up in the morning, you're living in the past and not the preferred future, and you're not thinking right. And he goes, man, that thinking is hard. That thinking is hard. And I said, the hard, it's hard to think well. It's hard to be spiritual. It's hard, but it's hard to be poor. It's hard to be weak. It's hard to be, it's hard to be sick. It's hard to, it's all hard. Choose your heart. Be a man. Stop looking at life from the perspective of, oh, I, I'm going to take the easy route. Whoever told you it was going to be easy. It's all hard. Wait until you, you think the, you think cashing the check of doing something hard is bad, is difficult. Wait till you cash the check of regret. Wait till you cash that check. Wait till that check comes up and then you have to pay, you have to take the withdrawal on that. So men, I'm telling you, I'm sitting here and I'm going, we look at this through this lens and we might be thinking, oh my gosh, you know, Paul must be doing something wrong. There's a whole bunch of people stirred up against him. No, no, no. Paul could be doing everything right and people are going to be stirred up against him. 
So what are they accusing Paul of? By the way, these are very serious charges. Two are the same charges they leveled against Stephen. Which, are, which, by the way, here's the irony. This is the beauty of God and the way he works. Remember, two of these charges are the very charges they would bring against Stephen. Who was there when Stephen was stoned holding the jackets of those who stoned him? Oh, how the tables have turned, huh? Paul, you were once the one doing all the, doing, participating in it. And now you're the one being accused of it. And what is it? The two ones that they accuse Stephen of, that they're accusing Paul of, that Paul is speaking against our law and this place. So what are they accusing of? Paul is speaking against the, the, the Torah, and he's speaking against the temple. And then the third is Paul is speaking against our people. Three charges. And by the way, I want you to know this. They are not necessarily wrong in their accusation. They are wrong in their assumption. Let me explain this to you. They are not wrong in their accusation against Paul, but they are wrong in their assumption. Because, see, the Jewish assumption is that the law requires sacrifice. Number one. Number two, the Jewish assumption is that the temple is the only place to meet God. And number three, the Jewish assumption is that the only people of God are the Israelites. Those are all correct assumptions. But something has happened. The assumptions, by these assumptions, I want you to understand their accusation is actually right. But the difficulty, ladies and gentlemen, is something substantial has occurred that has changed the reality of everything that they're accusing him of. They are keeping a false assumption. So what's changed? A man by the name of Jesus has come on, on the scene. How do you say that? Because the Jewish assumption is that the law requires sacrifice. And now that Jesus is here, he came not to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. He lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death that we deserve to die. He was the sacrifice, and no sacrifices are no longer needed. You see, there's one man, the one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. They had not included Jesus in the conversation. And now their assumptions are based upon false pretenses, and now they're making an accusation that was right but wrongly assumed because now you're right. There is no longer a need for sacrifice because Jesus is the sacrifice. Well, what about the, what about the place? I thought the, the temple was the place that you came to God. Jesus, the Bible says, for now those who are in Jesus are able to enter into the presence of God as a royal priesthood. And lastly, for now there is only the, only the Israelites were the children of God. The Bible says, for now there is no Jew nor Greek, but the gospel of Jesus is the power of God to salvation to both, the, to both and those who are redeemed by Him are now going to be under the new covenant of God's grace. You see, the church is the revelation of God's chosen people. All of it has changed. And it, shouldn't it? The gospel changes things, doesn't it? Jesus changes things. He changed our calendar. He changed our assumptions. He changed everything. So they say this, they say, men of Israel, come to our aid. Talking about being dramatic. Why do y'all need a bunch of people coming to your aid? It's Paul and maybe Trophimus. But it's just Paul. Oh, all you people, come to our aid. Oh, simmer down. Come to our aid. Prejudiced men often react with uncontrolled passions. And now what we're going to do is we're going to do something that I believe that our culture has bought into and, 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 and duplicated. I don't know if they went back and studied this in order to make it happen, but they have duplicated it because here you're going to find a dummy's guide to starting a riot. This is a dummy's guide to starting a riot. Are you ready? Be loud, be stupid, be angry, and be irrational and get a bunch of people to be it with you. Dummy's guide to starting a riot. And the next verse says, they, set, they had seen Trophimus the Ephesians in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul brought him into the temple, despite the fact, despite the fact 
that no one actually ever saw Trophimus in the temple. They just supposed. <laughs> they made an assumption. And you know what happens when you assume things. Because the most likely, if I could tell you this, I think the most likely indication is that Paul didn't bring Trophimus into the temple. Why would I say that? Because remember, last week what we studied, Paul was trying to establish his Jewishness. Paul wasn't trying to go against them. He was trying to establish his Jewishness in an effort to share the gospel in a way to those people. But they're just trying to find something to stick. Just trying to find something to stick. And you know what? Dogs always bark at those people they don't know. The irony is that Paul has come to be purified if this is the seventh day of his purification and he is coming to the temple to do this, he comes to be purified and then he's accused of defiling it. And as it does so many times, it works. Because when you have a culture of people who are built on ignorance and no moral foundation and the only right that we have is some sort of, some sort of power or authority or, or, or rule, the entire city is provoked so they, can, so they take Paul, drag him out of the temple, and they shut the doors behind him. I want you to pay attention to this verse. It's a very, it seems to be very menial, very uh, non-important, but I want you to pay attention to that. It says that they took Paul out of the temple and they shut the doors behind him. Why is that so important? Because never again in the book of Acts, which is the history of the church, will you see the temple doors reopened. Never in the book of Acts do you ever see it recorded and they open the temple doors. It's as if this is a transitional moment. From this moment forward, I want you to hear this. Paul goes to the temple. I mean, can you get, can you get the picture? Paul's going to the temple. He's going to be purified. He thinks he's doing all right. From this moment forward, Paul will never be a free man for the rest of his life. This moment forward, Paul will never be a free man for the rest of his life. And from this moment forward, never again will the, will the Bible declare that the temple doors were open. It's as if they shut the door on the good news of the gospel and it remains forever closed. And there's little doubt as to what they're trying to do because the next verse says, while they were seeking to kill him. And then here we see God's providence without man's plan. We're told the Roman commander who will come to be known as Claudius Lysias, he will play a major role in the next two chapters. He's made aware of this situation. It is his responsibility, by the way, in this area to keep the peace. So he responds with force, uh, with force taking some of his soldiers. I want you to notice here it says plural centurions, more than one centurion. If that means more than one centurion, each centurion had 100 soldiers, so we're talking about at least 200 soldiers. So I think this guy's going to make a point. He's taking 200, at least 200 soldiers to find out what this commotion is. So what does he do? There's a mob going on. It's all about Paul. So he arrests Paul and puts him in chains. Well, this ain't working out like you planned. Paul came to be cleansed, and now he's arrested. I wonder if upon hearing that click of the chains, that Paul was reminded of the words of Agabus. Remember what Agabus said in chapter 21, verse 10? As they were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from him, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, as well as the local residents began begging him not to go to Jerusalem, and then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am, all, I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of our Lord Jesus. He had already been warned that this is what was going to happen by the prophet Agabus, and now it's all coming to pass. Little did this Roman centurion know that they are, at the, they are the means of fulfilling God's providential plan for Paul. Little did this guy know that he was actually doing exactly what God had planned for it to be done. Lysias tries to determine what is going on. But as is true with most mobs, no one really knows. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, I could preach on this, but I'm not going to. But just listen to me. 
Unity of action doesn't equate to unity of purpose. Unity of action doesn't equate to unity of purpose, and sincerity does not equal morality. Sincerity doesn't equal morality. These people are sincere in their mob-ishness, but it doesn't mean they're right. Often those that are the most zealous and passionate are those that are the most evil and deviant. Sincerity and passion does not equal truth. You can wave your signs, you can chant your, your slogans, you can do all of these things, but sincerity and passion does not ever equate to truth. One author writes, it's always easier to rouse men to fight for their religion than to live by it. Oh, preach. We must remember Satan delights to persecute through religion because it's the most effective disguise of evil. So he orders Paul to be carried to the barracks, probably due to either his beating or his binding. And what does Paul hear from the crowd? What does Paul hear out of his ears from the crowd? Away with him! Away with him! Ah, the ringing through the corridors of history. We hear once again, away with this man and release for us Barabbas. Can you hear it? It is difficult to embrace when the whole world rises against us, but it must not distract us for we are reminded of those who have gone before us. Yeah? So that's Paul's, uh, Paul was taken. Now we're going to look at Paul's testimony. Paul's testimony. Paul is about to, to be brought about into the barracks, so he petitions Elysius to say something to him. Elysius responds, do you know Greek? Paul's request seems to have stunned this man. And here we get a glimpse into what the commander was thinking, for it seems he suspected Paul of being a revolutionary, this Egyptian who tried to lead a revolt of assassins. There was a Jewish historian known by the name of Josephus who wrote of this Egyptian, and he says that he was a false prophet of a sect of Jewish freedom fighters who took some men into the wilderness to train them for a revolt against the Romans, only to be defeated by a man by the name of Felix, who we're going to meet just a little bit later. So this, this Jewish historian validates that this Egyptian that was doing these things were living in this day. This commander thought Paul was possibly this man. Paul responds, wait, I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia. This, this provides the reason for allowing him to address the Jews. Apparently, his posture for the request convinced Lysias that Paul was not a terrorist, earning him the ability to address the crowd. So Paul is given permission. He stands on top of the stairs and then motions to the people with his hands. Now you might ask, why is Paul trying to address the crowd that just tried to kill him? That's like asking the question, why would Jesus... Pray for the very people who just crucified him. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, church. And when you are hated for preaching the truth, here's what I'm going to tell you to do. Preach the truth. When you are despised for saying that which is right and real according to God's word and that's that which salvation is, I'm going to tell you what, how you respond to that. You respond by continuing to preach the truth. There's no action from other people, no reaction from other people that removes our need for the gospel to be proclaimed. And would our hearts be for the hearts of the souls of men? Would our hearts beat for the souls of those who reject Jesus so that they could come to know, to him, to know him? So the Bible says that the crowd calms down. And then it says, Paul then speaks to them in Hebrew. Remember the charges that are spoke against Paul, the people, the law, and the temple. Paul is about to share his testimony. And he's going to provide a defense to these accusations simultaneously. But instead of defending the specific accusation, Paul addresses the overarching theme of the accusation. And that's Paul's faithfulness to Judaism. 
Now, ladies and gentlemen, we already studied Paul's testimony back when we went through chapter 9. So I'm not going to go verse by verse here. But I want to refer you back to that sermon that we preached back in Acts chapter 9. But what I do want to do is highlight the overarching message that's being provided. Here he says, brethren and fathers, hear my defense which I offer before you. And then Paul is going to speak of his former zeal in Judaism in verses 1 through 5. He is going to demonstrate how every area of his life was that of a strict practicing Jew. The entire point that Paul is making, he is far from being a lawbreaker. He is a follower of the law that even exceeded their own self. Now, I find tremendous reality in this for those of you who are raised in the church. I've heard this said. My testimony is not a great testimony. Why? Because I was raised in the church. Well, Paul was raised in the quote-unquote church. He was raised in religion. He was a, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was, he was legal. <laughs> he was doing all these things that he should have done, and he was trying to do it right. But it is, among, it is in the backdrop of this <coughs> that he comes and he says, wait, I was doing everything that I thought was right. And then, and then he relates how he encountered the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus in, chapter six, in verses 6 through 11. Followed by his visit by Ananias in 12 through 16. I want you to pay attention to the attention. Why do I say that? It is because how many times have you shared your testimony and your testimony seems to be more about a celebration of your sin than it is about the celebration of God's redemptive power in Christ. People seem to be more interested in telling me about all that they did before salvation, how bad they were, instead of speaking about the goodness of Jesus. Yes, we do want to tell, us, tell people where we were, but where we were and the sin that we were in is not the victor. The victor is Jesus, and that is the one, the reason that we ought to be sharing our testimony. He is the one. He is the hero of our story. We have three different accounts, by the way, of Paul giving his testimony, and each one have the same general truths, but they adapt them to the office to whom they were addressing. For one example, and I'm not going to go through all of them, one example is in chapter 9. Ananias is the link between Paul and the Christian community. So Ananias is introduced to those people as a Christian disciple. Here Paul is speaking to who? He's speaking to Jews. So he expresses that Ananias was devout to Judaism. And it is here where Paul begins to distinguish himself, especially in the confession of Jesus as Lord. This is important for us because as we even share our testimony, we are to do it in accordance to those in which we're sharing our testimony with. And it is here where Paul begins to tell us, and he adds that he saw this vision apparently in his first visit to Jerusalem, where Jesus commissions him for his mission to the Gentiles. This is what he's talking about in 17 through 21. You see, Paul concludes his conversion by expressing the vision that he had in the temple, which was likely in the direct response to him desecrating the temple. And it is concluded with Paul interpreting it all as a call to leave and to reach the Gentiles. You remember when Jesus came to Ananias and told Ananias that he was to go to Paul? In Acts chapter 9, when we studied this, Acts chapter 9, verse 15, Jesus would tell Ananias to go to Paul, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. So what does Paul do? Paul takes a trial and he makes it an opportunity for a testimony. There is no testimony without test. There has to be a test in order for there to be a testimony. And that's what he's going to do. He is going to now use this as an opportunity to share all the good things that God has done for him. But I want you to notice, as you're, as you're preparing your testimony, notice the three parts. Number one, who I was. Number two, how I met Jesus. And number three, now what he has called me to do in light of meeting him. That's the three parts of your testimony. So what is, what, what, who was I? What did Jesus do? Jesus is my hero. I look for other heroes. They weren't. What did Jesus do? He saved me. He redeemed me so that now I am to go and proclaim the good news of the gospel to others. This is the matter of our testimony. And I think it's a good, a good background for us if we were to sit down and study it. 
However, we're going to continue here. We go from Paul's, uh, Paul's taken. Uh, we have Paul's testimony. And now we're going to read in Paul's appeal. Paul's appeal. This is 22 through 29. And with that call, the Bible says immediately the silence is filled with the crowd's plea. Until now, they had just listened. But something that Paul said, they can't tolerate. And it's the inclusiveness of the Gentiles into the gospel that they could not bear. Are you telling me God can save those people too? Yeah. He can save us. So they regained their plea of a way with him, adding now that he didn't even have a right to exist. Well, that escalated quickly, yeah. So they take off their cloaks and they throw dust in the air. Quite a response. What's all this? Why are they taking off their cloaks? Well, we don't know, but I do want to remind you that Paul would be reminded of a time that he stood by holding cloaks while God's servants was punished. Why would you, why would you take off your cloak? Because a beating is about to come. And i got to get comfortable for this beating. So I'm going to take off this cloak so that I can throw hands. Make sense? Why are they throwing dust in the air? Well, they're in Jerusalem. There's not, where are they at? They're at the temple. What's not around in this area? Not a lot of rocks. So if you're so mad you want to stone somebody and they ain't no stones, what you got left? Dirt. Remember, Paul's at the top of the stairs. So they're angry, so they tear off their clothes and they begin to throw dirt. They want to go at this man. It is unmitigated rage and hate and anger. It's a collective outrage to what Paul is proclaiming. A collective outrage that the gospel and God's grace is now extended to the Gentiles. To those people. To us people. So the commander orders Paul to be taken into the barracks. But having heard Paul's testimony, I imagine that he is even more aware of this entire situation than he even was before. So he decides to use the Roman way of divulging the truth. So how would the Romans divulge truth? A little bit of scourging? You know, we'll get it out of you one way or another. Well, they're trying one way or another. Most believe that this was the flagellum. It considered of le a leather thongs with bones and metal inside of it as they would rip across your body and tear your body to pieces. The Bible says as Paul is being stretched out for his punishment, he gets the attention of the centurion. And he asked, is it legal to flog a Roman citizen who hadn't been found guilty? It is the equivalent of us in the United States appealing to the courts for our punishment rather than it being done at the hands of the police officer. It's us asking, do you have a right to arrest, do you have a right to kill me here on the streets? Or do I have a right as a human citizen to now, or as an American citizen to be read my Miranda and to go before the courts and to stand before a jury of my own peers? That would be the equivalent of what's happening in this situation. And he learns that Paul isn't given citizenship, but Paul is born with it. Now this will play a rather significant part in fulfilling this call to go to Rome. But now what we know is that it ends. The entire procedure is stopped with the alarming reality of Paul's treatment, which we don't fully understand, but it seems reasonable to believe that what they were doing wasn't a good thing. And according to some historians, that you could not beat or abuse a Roman citizen without court approval. So it's almost as though Paul is using whatever means necessary, whatever righteous means necessary. What we do know is that from this place forward, Lysias and, and Paul 
will have a different type of relationship. So you woke up this morning, came to church. You know, you want to do the right thing. And you walk out. And then you're going to be arrested and beaten for being a Christian. How many of you would be sitting in a jail cell this evening if you were the apostle? Questioning every step and every move because obviously this can't be God's plan for my best life now. This can't be it. Or is it? Ladies and gentlemen, faith family, will we view only the situations of comfort and personal pleasure as providential? Or does our pain and potential persecution possibly fit inside the entire narrative as well? You see, how, these, how we see these moments are pivotal in our outlook, our onlook, in our current life. Because what if the very times that bring us these unexpected results are viewed through the lens of opportunities to reveal God's power in us and through us? I have often been asked many questions as a pastor when it comes to our faith family and some of the situations that we've encountered and obviously some of the situations that I've encountered over the past month. And you look at it all and you just go, how do you make it through? I mean, think about it. Virtually a month ago, I was watching my daughter in a Fort Portal, Ugandan prison being hooked up to IVs because she had passed out from a bacterial infection. Oh, before, two days before that, my plane flight was totally canceled. I had to stay a whole month in Uganda where I was supposed to stay two weeks. That didn't go as I planned. How am I supposed to look at that? My daughter's in a hospital. Obviously, we're not doing something right. She's in a hospital. How am I supposed to look at that? I get back, and my next-door neighbor, the one that lives right next door to me, decides to shoot his wife seven times and then send me a text saying he was sorry and then shot himself on the back porch. A week later, my little brother dies. Oh, and by the way, while, my, while we were going through the funeral, my water pump went out on my car. My air conditioner went out on my truck. That was $3,200. Then I get through all that, and then on Thursday, I catch COVID. You're telling me that I just live a life where it just, you know, it just gets good. If I could be more vulnerable, I would, but I'm not going to because I don't think this is the appropriate place. But I would say this. How you look at all those things matter. How you view those things of life, it matters. If I go back and I reflect on all that and I begin to think about, oh God, what did I do wrong? 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 Well, God, I must not be in your will because all hell's breaking loose against me. I mean, I really feel like everything's coming against me at one time and it's just a wave after wave after wave of emotion. And the next thing you know, you're sitting back and you're sitting in your, uh, I don't know if y'all do this, but it just might be me. You're sitting there on a Friday when COVID shriveled up in your bed, not able to practically move. And you're sitting here going, having your little pity party, having your pity party on your bed, you boo, boo, boo. And you're sitting here going, wait, who is your God? Who is your God? You see, either he is the God of providence in all things or he's not the God of providence in anything. You've got to make your choice. It's not this idea that I, I'm going to take God when I want him, but I'm not going to take God when I don't want him. It's not this idea that I'm going to take God in the comfort and convenience, but I'm not going to, uh, or I'm going to, I want God in, some, uh, in the pain and the problems, but I don't want God in the comfort and convenience. Where is he? What is he? What is he to you? 
Is he Santa? Knows when you're sleeping, knows when you're awake. Be good for goodness sake. And if you are, you'll get a gift every now and then. You take him off the shelf, use him when you want to use him, put him back. Is that what he is? Is he Michelangelo's God where he's barely stretched across heaven, almost touching the hand of man, but yet can't ever quite make it because he's frozen? What do you do with God when you're in prison because you've done everything right? What do you do with God when, when you're in a, at a funeral and, you, and, and there's nothing you could have done anything? What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? What do you believe? What are you going to trust in? Where are you going to go? Because I'm going to tell you, guess what's happening? What's about to happen is all of you are about to leave this place. You're going to walk out. And guess what? This week's coming. This week's coming. I would tell you, may we see and seek these difficult opportunities in the weeks to come, in the weeks that have passed, so that even in the midst of them, are you listening? Oh, I heard, I heard you, Pastor. Did you? Even in the midst of them, that you and I may be able to proclaim God's goodness and His grace so that others may hear about our King and seeing His kingdom on display in the midst of our mess. In the midst of our mess. So that when they know when the truth of the matter comes, that God is the God of the good and he is providential also over the bad. Oh, pastor, where do you get such nonsense? Where do you get such nonsense? For God causes all things to work to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Romans chapter 8 is where I get all this nonsense. All things, all things, not just the good, not just the bad, but all things. Will you please stand to your feet as we respond to God's preaching, the preaching of God's word, excuse me. Let us prepare our hearts, prepare our minds as we look back into our week into our months, into our days that have passed us, and we see the difficulty and we can still thank God for His goodness and grace. Maybe it's in this morning. Maybe, maybe you woke up this morning in the midst of difficulty. And as His people, may we see His goodness and grace. And as we prepare now our hearts for the weeks to come, may we do so preparing our hearts for his goodness and his grace. There's something we, we're studying. I can't walk away, my batteries are dead. There's something that we're studying um, with the students uh, across the street on Wednesdays and we're doing the spiritual disciplines. And we, we just got done with a study last week about this idea of confession. And we studied every Bible verse, well we read every Bible verse where confession was mentioned in the Bible. And do you know there are more Bible verses mentioning confession in the Bible where it's confessing God's goodness than it is confessing our sin? Did you know that? Now there is real verses in the Bible saying that we ought to confess our sins for he is just and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But do you know how many times it tells us to confess God's goodness? To praise him? So as we come to the Lord this morning, may we confess his goodness and may we confess our sin. And may we be reminded. So that when we come to this table, we don't do it in an unworthy manner. If you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus, obviously we would call you to believe in him. You would follow through with that by a believer's baptism. Confessing your sin, trusting in your heart that he is saved. 
and believing by uh, identifying with that, uh, demonstrating that by being baptized under the water, to be brought under the water and to be brought back up, to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We would call you to that. If you are an unbeliever this morning, then we would obviously want you to become a believer. But if you decide not to this morning, we are going to ask that you do not participate in the Lord's Supper. You're more than welcome to walk up to the table, but please don't participate in the elements. This is for your health and for your sake spiritually and for our health and our sake spiritually. For the Bible says that we are not to partake in these elements. And by the way, this is the Lord's Supper. If you don't call him Lord, why would you want to participate in this supper? But let me say this. You're pushing away from the table. The invitation's been offered. There will come a day, maybe sooner rather than later, maybe later rather than sooner, but there will come a day that you will stand before him. There will come that day. And I just want to bring that to your mind. So as we prepare our hearts now, church, Let us go before our great God and King in prayer. Let us pray.